I am, uh, as you heard Inika say a minute ago, I'm one of the uh, pastors here at uh, Connect Church, and I'm here from time to time depending on uh, responsibilities and commitments and where I'm preaching. Uh, but this morning, it is a privilege to be able to uh, share with you and uh, speak to you from God's Word. Um, if you've been around, you will know that we are journeying through uh, one of the most difficult books in the whole Bible, and it's called Hebrews. Uh, and we're right in the middle of that, and um, Lord willing, I'm going to look at chapter 7 today. But um, how many of you have heard of this guy called Melchizedek before? Okay, wow, I'm impressed. Okay, maybe some of you should come and preach the sermon then. Because <laughs> when I sat down to look at Melchizedek and thought, well, I'm supposed to preach a sermon on this guy. It's one thing to know about somebody, it's another thing to preach on them. But anyway, I'm going to do my best this morning as the Lord enables me. But I think one of the things that struck me um, as I was preparing this, there, there are times when you come to God's Word, one of the most important things you can do is ask yourself the question, why? You know, we often, when we come to the Bible and read it, we want it to speak to us. We want it to give us information. We want it to enlighten us. But there are times it is valuable to come to God's Word and say, Lord, why is this here and what is this here for? And that's exactly uh, what started to happen to me as I asked the, myself the question, why is there a focus on this guy called Melchizedek. What in the world is that actually in the Bible for? And as I began to ask that question and discover the answer, something started to happen in me. I think that it, if I could describe it this way, God started to do something in my heart. And I hope what God did in my heart, He's going to do in your heart as well. So here's the question. Let's start with the question. And maybe you want to ask yourself this question this morning. Why does the author of Hebrews draw our attention to somebody who is so insignificant in the Old Testament? In fact, I'll show you just now, there are four verses in Genesis 14 that refer to Melchizedek. There's one verse in Psalm 110 verse 4 that refers to him. And then the he writer to the Hebrews builds a whole theology around this guy. So, so the question is, why do you think God put the name and the person Melchizedek in the Old Testament in just a few verses? Because answering that question will help you to understand the importance of looking at this guy this morning. Ask yourself the question. No need to answer it out loud. But we want to give you thinking space here today. Some of you are looking a lot more worried than a few minutes ago. Let me, let me share with you why I believe it's in the Scripture. Melchizedek is there to highlight the importance of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. So in other words, he's going to look at a person in the Old Testament. And as we look at this person in the Old Testament, something is meant to happen for us as we do that. We are meant to understand something about Jesus. And it's not just knowing about Jesus. But it's knowing about what's called the high priestly 
ministry of Jesus. Now, to appreciate what uh, the author to Hebrews is doing, we've got to go back to one, I believe, one of the most significant questions Jesus ever asked his disciples in the New Testament. It was this question Who do you say that I am? To, to me, that was one of the most significant questions Jesus ever asked his disciples. And when he asked his disciples this question, he's wanting to discover for himself. With this group of men that have been traveling around with him, living with him, spending time with him, listening to his teaching, watching him do ministry, have they come to the place where they really know and understand who he is? And so you remember Peter's response is, you are the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one, which is another word for Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when Jesus hears Peter say that, Jesus says, now I can build my church. You see, the church is always built around people who know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what church is all about. Church is all about Jesus Christ, who's the Son of the living God. It's not about you and me, it's about Him. That's what church is all about. And so Jesus said, now I know that I can build my church. But then Jesus goes on to say something radical. He says to Peter, you didn't come to this conclusion on your own. He said, you only came to this conclusion because my Father in heaven has revealed that truth to you. In other words, Peter just living with Jesus, watching his ministry, listening to his teaching couldn't come to the conclusion and the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know that's still true today. People can read the Bible and read the Bible, but there needs to be that moment in time when the God of heaven opens our eyes and opens our understanding and we begin to, reveal, to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May I say this to you this morning, Jesus is God. Later on in the Bible, when Paul begins to talk about why he was willing to consider virtually everything in his life as rubbish or worthless, it is because in comparison to knowing Jesus, all of those things pale into insignificance. In fact, if we can put Mark that scripture up there, I want you just to read again. What Paul says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more I consider? Do you notice he goes on and on about, I consider everything a loss. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake, he says it again, I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Now, for those of you who are great Bible scholars, the word that he's using there is the word dung. That's how worthless he considers everything else that was important in his life. That I may gain Christ. 
I want to say this to you this morning. For Paul, knowing Jesus was more important than his career. Knowing Jesus was more important than wealth. Knowing Jesus was more important than his family ancestry. Knowing Jesus was more important than popularity. Knowing Jesus was more important than any position that he could ever aspire to in life. And the comment I want to know, want to make this morning, knowing Jesus should be like that for us as well. All the things we thought were important. Think of the things you want to achieve. The things that you would like to do with your life. Every dream you have set your heart on. They're all insignificant in comparison to Jesus. So the writer to the Hebrews, let's get back to Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews, he's wanting to remind people, he's wanting to focus people's attention on this. They had a great high priest that they could turn to. Someone who is like Melchizedek. And what was happening to these Christians is they had started to become, started to be persecuted. Some of them had lost their, their properties. Some of them had been thrown into prison. Some of them had to flee for their lives because of the intensity of the persecution that was taking place. And so what was happening, because Judaism was still a legal religion in the sight of Rome, you wouldn't be persecuted and put to death like Christians, like it was happening to Christians. They were being tempted to say, let me turn to go back to Judaism. Because remember, these were Hebrew Christians. Let me go back to Judaism and I will be safe. But the one thing you needed to do if you went back to Judaism, you had to renounce Christ. And so the temptation as things got worse and worse and worse, more and more pressure was to turn away from Jesus, back to Judaism, renounce Christ so that I could be safe. And I've discovered that when it gets tough, and when it's hard and when it's costly to be a Christian, you will be tempted as I have been tempted to put our faith in other things other than Jesus. It's what always happens. You know that. So let's look at what Hebrews has to say about Melchizedek. I'm going to start right in chapter 6 and verse 13 because it gives us a little bit of an introduction. And then we're going to read through chapter 7 as well. When God made His promise to Abraham. Do you remember God said to, to Abraham that I'm going to give you children as many as the stars in the sky and the sand uh, along the seashore. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. So when God made this promise, His promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. In other words, God took an oath. God made a promise. And he wanted to make the promise so certain and so sure. He said, I swear by myself. Because there's nothing greater to swear by. And he said, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. The writer goes on to say, men, people like you and me, swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what he said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised. 
That's you and me. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And then he he personifies hope. He said it enters the inner sanctuary, that's the holy of holies, behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And here it is, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's We we begin to touch on the whole Melchizedek thing. Then chapter 7. This Melchizedek, now he's going to try and explain to us who Melchizedek is. He was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, He remains a priest forever. Remember, all of these things are so that we can know about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Just think of how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of all the plunder. Now the law requires, this is the Old Testament law, requires the descendants of Levi, the tribe of Levi, that was the priestly tribe, who became the priests to collect a tenth from all of the people. That is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descendants from Abraham. In other words, that was the one tribe they gave. They inherited no land like all of the other tribes. They were to live off the tithes that were given by the people. That's that's what sustained them. They couldn't live off the land like the other tribes. They collected a tithe from the other tribes, and that's how they were to live. Verse 6, this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. In other words, all the priests then had come from the tribe of Levi, Melchizedek doesn't. In fact, I want to tell you this about Melchizedek. He is the only priest we read about in the Bible who's a Gentile. Isn't that interesting? If you want a high priest for all nations, you can't limit that person to being a Jew. He is a Gentile. He's not from the tribe of Levi. That's the whole point that's being made over here. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, and yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise, the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is always blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth collected by men, was collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. You see what it's saying? That the Levites, who were the priests, collected a tithe from all of the people, and yet because they were still, in a sense, in the loins of Abraham, in a sense, all the Levites and all the people acknowledged the greatness of Melchizedek because they paid a tithe through Abraham to Melchizedek. That's his whole point that he's making. If perfection, 
could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was Moses' brother. For when there's a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear, now we're coming to Jesus, that our Lord did not descend from Levi, the tribe of Levi, but from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who's become a priest not on the basis of the regulation as to his ancestry. That means simply this. The reason you could be a priest was because you were of the tribe of Levi. That's the qualification. And sometimes we had some real scoundrels who became priests. Remember Eli and what was happening and his sons and what they were doing. But because they were from the Levitical tribe, they automatically became priests. So one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. In other words, the Levitical priesthood. For the law made nothing purpose, perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not done without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But, but he became a priest, Melchizedek, with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And therefore, he is able to com save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath, speaking about what God said early on, which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. In other words, very simply, Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. So getting to know who Melchizedek is and what Melchizedek has done helps us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's as simple as that. Now, now there, there are four things I want to talk to you about Melchizedek and there are four things we learn about Jesus from Melchizedek. It's, that's what my sermon's about. It's as simple as that. So I want to start off by talking about the uniqueness 
of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Because that's what's being highlighted over here. And as I said to you, the very first account that we've got of Melchizedek, it's in, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. There it is. And you'll find that that's exactly what Hebrews is referring to in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. So we have to ask the question, why would somebody like Melchizedek be so important to you and me today? And I think this is the moment, and if I can ask all of you, press pause. Pause. Stop and think. The uniqueness of the high priestly ministry or the priestly ministry of Melchizedek is hugely important for you and me to understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus. If we don't understand that properly, we can't understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus properly. And I said there are four things that are unique about Melchizedek. I'm going to run through them quickly. He's first of all, you'll discover he is both a priest and a king. It's the only place in the whole Bible where you discover the same person is a priest and a king at the same time. And you remember what priests would do? Because of people's sinfulness, the priest was the person who was ordained and set apart to represent people before God. And represent God to the people. That was the role of a priest. right? So when we look at Melchizedek, that was his role. When you look at the Levitical priests, that was their role. And when you look at Jesus, that's his role as well. But then it goes on to say, not only was he a priest, he is called the king of righteousness. That's what the word Melchizedek means. He's the king of righteousness. Not only is he the king of righteousness, he's the king of Salem. And does anybody know what Salem is called today? Jerusalem. It's the city of Shalom. It is the city of God's peace. So remember, Melchizedek, he's a priest. He's a king. He's a king over, of righteousness. And he's the king of the city called peace. Okay, that's the first unique thing. The second is that he's different to all of the Levitical priests. Interestingly enough, Melchizedek is appointed way before the law is given and way before the Levitical tribe is appointed to be the priestly tribe. That's, so he's different. And, and the, the point that's being made by the writer here is, is the Levites were unable to fulfill all the requirements of the priesthood because of their own imperfections. They were also sinners. They also fell short. So they had to, every time they came to the Lord, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sins. You said, oh, I'm going to come to you today. I'm going to come to you, John. Will you offer a sacrifice? I've sinned. Here's my goat. Here's my turtle dove, whatever. Will you offer a, a sacrifice for me before the Lord at the temple? And John says, yes, I can, but I need to do for myself first. Because I'm also a sinner, and I've also failed, and I've also fallen short of God. And so every time that somebody brought a sacrifice, the priest would say, well, I've got to bring my sacrifice as well. And so he was different. He was appointed before. But then you'll also discover that Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. Remember, that's the point that he's been, that he's been making. 
Now, you might not appreciate that because we are all Gentiles, but for the Jews, Abraham is the father of faith. He is the father of the Jewish nation. He's the man who's been given the promise. All the nations will be blessed through you. And now what he's saying is, Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. Your great ancestor, your great father of the faith. And we notice that because Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and not only that, Abraham gives a tenth of all of his plunder. Abraham has just been out to war with some kings who've taken Lot captive and his family. And so Abraham goes to war. He conquers the kings. He comes back with all the plunder because that's what you did in those days. And he gives him a tenth of everything because he wants to honor God for the victory that he has received. And the fourth thing about him. So, we've, remember what we've said over there? He's a priest and king. Secondly, he's different to the Levitical priests who failed. and They were not able to fulfill God's requirements. Thirdly, he's greater than Abraham. And here's the fourth thing. He has an, what's called an eternal priesthood. Now, the writer to the Hebrews does a very interesting thing. And something that's worth remembering. He looks at what the Bible does say. And then he looks at what the Bible doesn't say about Melchizedek. And one of the things he notices is the Bible says nothing about where he comes from, when he dies, who his parents were. And that's the point that he makes in verse 3. He's without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days uh, and end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so one of the unique aspects of Melchizedek is although he's... uh, Unlike, his, unlike any other priest, because his ministry would last forever. He would never stop being a priest. Almost a thousand years later, in Psalm 110 verse 4, and you've got to realize now, here's David, the man of God. He's prophetically speaking about the coming of Messiah. And he recognizes one thing that nobody else around him saw in his generation. That Messiah would be a priest like Melchizedek, not like the Levites who were ministering in the temple every day. And so that's why he writes, the Lord is sworn. Now you know where he got it from. He gets it from Genesis 14. And will not change his mind. Speaking about Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek teaches us about the uniqueness of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And here's the question you've got to ask yourself now. Why is that important today? Why is it so important that for us living in the 21st century. Why is it important for us to know about the high priestly ministry of Jesus? Because I've discovered as long as I've been a pastor, very few people talk about the high priestly ministry of Jesus today. How often do you hear a sermon, except on Ascension Day, about the high priestly ministry of Jesus? Almost never. So therefore things I want us to draw out and discover about the high priestly ministry of Jesus from this guy Melchizedek. And the first one is this, that Jesus is the perfect high priest. 
Do you know that many of the accounts that we have in the, in the Old Testament are to teach us about Jesus? Do you know that the central person of the whole Bible is Jesus? Do you know that you can't really understand the Old Testament until you understand the Old Testament speaking about Jesus? That's why people get really confused when they read the Old Testament because they don't realize that the Old Testament is actually talking about one person. His name is Jesus. Have you noticed that? Do you remember on the, those, those people on the road to Emmaus? And Jesus is walking with him and they don't understand that it's, that it's Jesus. And, and then the, Luke says this to us. It uh, says, Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Do you know that Jesus taught them about himself from the Old Testament? I don't know if any of you remember the Ethiopian eunuch. Some of you remember him, the story of him? Do you remember what he was reading from him when, when Philip appears to him? He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Do you know that Philip leads him to Christ and salvation from Isaiah 53? Because Isaiah speaks about Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus comes to the temple in Luke chapter 4 and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he says this to them, this scripture is fulfilled today. Do you see that the Old Testament is about Jesus? We've got to get that. And what's being pointed out over here Every one of us needs a high priest. Do you know that you need a high priest? Do you know that you need a high priest? Do you know that Jesus is your perfect high priest today? Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. And since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have, have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a, our time of need. Let me say this to you this morning. Because of our humanity and because we still fall short, God has provided us with a high priest who's able to save us because he keeps interceding for us every day of our lives. Or could I put it to you like this, and I hope I don't shock you. Do you know that none of you are saved yet? You will only be saved when Jesus comes. You have been saved, you are being saved, but one day you'll be saved. You see, you know how I know that? Because it tells us He's able to save us completely because He is making intercession for us every day. In other words, we need to trust Jesus every day for our salvation. We get to heaven one day because we trust Jesus every day of our lives now. That makes sense to you? You see, as Christians, we often talk about, I'm saved, 
I've given my life to God. You ain't saved yet. You're on the way to being saved. That's why it's important every day to hold on to Jesus and trust Jesus because Jesus is your high priest and because you've got a high priest, you're going to get saved. Not because you're so good, but because he makes intercession for you. That makes sense to you? Not. That's right. Right. It troubles you when you say that. And it troubles you when I, when I say that because we think of salvation as a, a point in time. And I want to say to you, the Bible says you, you have been justified. You are being sanctified. And one day you'll be glorified. You see, we have been saved. We are being saved. And one day we will be saved because of the cross and because we have a high priest. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins, right? All right, but the problem is, even though he's paid the price for our sins, we go on sinning. And therefore we have a high priest who continues to make intercession for us in the sight of God so that we will be completely saved one day. Now, the reason I want to point out to them is because there are some people that say, I've given my life to Christ and then they do what they like. See, I'm saved. And I want to say to you, you can't do what you like. You need to keep trusting Jesus every day of your life. That's why the Hebrews keeps on writing, we need to persevere, we need to keep trusting, we need to keep going to a high priest. You see, you don't need a high priest if it's all done and dusted. You need a high priest because you are being saved and when Jesus comes one day, you will finally be saved. That's hugely important that we get that. And I'm not trying to deny the cross. I'm wanting to say that salvation's bigger than, it's a bigger process for you and for me. The cross paid the price for our sins. The high priest continues to intercede in the sight of God every day for every one of us. You need to know and I need to know that one day I will get to heaven because we have a high priest who's interceding. See, that's why people don't talk much about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. They don't see it as important. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, I want to show you how important it is. You will be completely saved one day because you've got a high priest. You need to get your heads around that one. Right. Somebody? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's when you have this actually the time. That's right. So let me clarify, because I don't want anybody to think I'm a heretic today. <laughs> when you leave here, you are saved because of the cross. But you are being saved today because of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And you will be saved because Jesus will come again and He will make you just like Him. You see, please try and get your heads away from the fact is, it's once upon a time. It's once upon a time, it is happening, and it will happen one day. And if I can put it to you like this, the only day you can truly say, I am saved, is when you're in the, in the presence of the Lord. Okay. I'm not going to answer that question now. <laughs> But if you listened to Roland's sermon last, night, last week, that's where I'm at. Roman, Hebrews 6. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, or can I throw away my salvation? Yes. That's right. We're speaking to believers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Glad. I'm getting. Somebody's getting it. Awesome. So, so here's the here's the thing I want to say to you, and read it at the end of chapter five. You know what disturbs the writer to the Hebrews more than anything else? He's saying to them, "By now you should be teachers, but I can only give you milk." Friends, this is the kind of stuff that anchors our soul and helps us to journey the journey. When we're strong in Jesus, my salvation is all because of Him. And I keep trusting Him. Okay, I'm going to need to pause there because time is going, Steve, so you can talk to me afterwards. Secondly, only Jesus is able to save us completely. This may help you. See, the problem with the Levitical priesthood is the priest kept dying. And not only that, the sacrifices they brought were inadequate. Because that's why they had to keep bringing. They brought one today and you bring another one tomorrow and another one tomorrow and another one the next day. So this is what it says. Hebrews 7 and verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, then why was there need for another priesthood? If they got it waxed and they got it right, then why do we need another priesthood? And the point is they didn't get it right. It was, what they brought was insufficient in, and inadequate. That's why in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 and verse 26, it says about Jesus, therefore He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Why? Because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. I want to say something that struck me, and this is one of the things that happened to me when I was looking at this. The most important thing in my life and your life is your salvation. It's more important than you getting married. It's more important than a successful career. It's more important than getting a degree. 
It's more important than which political party is in power. It's more important than any hardship you may face in life. The single most important thing in the world is your salvation. And that you know Jesus. And I feel there's a prophetic word to the church here. Let's get back to what's really important again. I think it's kind of, we've put our salvation and our relationship with Christ, it kind of fits into everything else we do in life. And so, well, if, you know, if rugby is more important, Jesus can take the back seat for a while. And if, if, if my career is more important, it's not like that. And it's a challenge for me, or it certainly was at the time when I was parenting. What's more important for my kids? Getting a degree or knowing Jesus? Their degree will not give them an eternity with Christ. But their salvation will be. How rich you are will not give you an eternity with Christ. Only Jesus will. Only being saved will. Being the most successful, I was interesting, I was looking at Bill Gates was in Cape Town. I don't know how many of you saw that. Just this past week, he's got a big project that's going on in Kailicha with toilets. He was actually in Cape Town when it was pouring with rain and there the guys were walking with umbrellas around him. He's the richest man in the world. Do you know that he will not be with Jesus one day unless he knows Christ? You can have it all. But if you don't know Jesus and your salvation is not the most important thing, you will be lost for all of eternity, irrespective of how successful you are here. Right, thirdly, we discover from Melchizedek that Jesus is the only high priest who has ever satisfied God's requirements for sin. You see, it's only when we understand and comprehend what Jesus has done, and I want you to hear me, that you and I can really understand how sinful we are. I've realized most of us in this room do not understand how sinful we are in the sight of God. Most of us actually think, and I would, let me put it to you this way. I think most of us would say here we recognize we're sinners, right? Not one of you has a clue how bad a sinner you are in the sight of God. There's, there's a part of us where, where we kind of think, well, we're not too bad. Lord, I'm even at church today. I'm not such a bad person. I don't know how many of you saw the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. But there's a scene in that movie where Jesus is beaten that is just literally a mess. It's just mangled flesh. We, we took a group from our church. We booked out the whole movie house. We went to see it. And I watched the faces of people coming out of it. They were traumatized by what had happened to Jesus. And you know why they were traumatized? Because they all felt sorry for Jesus. It was terrible to see what happened to Jesus. But isn't the point of what happened to Jesus to show you how bad you are? What happened to him wasn't for you to feel sorry for him. It's for you to know how sinful you are. When he was punished and beaten to a pulp and nailed and abused and mocked, it's because of how bad we are. 
We are so bad that the creator of the universe who was spotless and never sinned had to be beaten to a pulp and crucified on a cross. That's how bad we are. That's why verse 27 says, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to over-sacrifice his day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. That's why Isaiah says, surely he took up our. It's you and it's me. He carried our sorrows. But we considered him stricken by God. That's what the picture of the passion of the Christ. We kept, the, oh, I am so feel so sorry for Jesus. You stop feeling sorry for Jesus. Feel sorry for yourself. He sacrificed for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And the last thing, and then I'm done. The fourth revelation that comes from this man, Melchizedek, is that Jesus is both high priest and his king. See, most believers, when they think about Jesus, they think about him as savior, or they think about him as the son of God. But I need to say to you this morning, he is also the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords. Do you know that one day Jesus will reign over all things? He's the only king that actually counts. That's why Isaiah says, For us to for unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and the peace. Peace, there will be no end. Jesus is coming to rule, guys. You know, none of us here this morning has a clue of what the future holds. But one thing I can tell you with certainty, He will reign forever and ever and ever as Handel's Messiah said. He's the King. He's the coming King. Let's just go through those points again because it's hugely important. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's the one who intercedes for us without sin every day. Secondly, He's the only one who can ever save us completely. Thirdly, Jesus is the only high priest that has ever satisfied God's requirements for sin. And fourthly, Jesus is not only a priest, He's also our coming King. And so as we wrap up this morning, we're going to do two things. We're going to worship Him. We're going to turn to Him. We're going to honor Him. We're going to praise Him. Because there is no one else in the universe that's worthy of your praise today and of my praise today. You cannot possibly sing a song the same way you did before hearing this message. Worthy 
is the lamb that was slain. Worthy. Now you understand why the apostle John looked and he said, I heard the voice of many angels. There were thousands upon thousands and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. To receive power and all wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth started singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. His name is Jesus. Guys, that's what it's all about. That's one thing we're going to do. And the other thing we're going to do is have communion. And when you pick up that cup this morning, and when you pick up that piece of bread, and you're going to break that piece of bread, I want you to remember, He died for you. And he died for me. And the second thing I want you to remember is because He died, you are free. He died, you are forgiven. He died, you are righteous. Because of Him. That mangled body of Jesus. The injustice of the cross. The way they crucified Him. The way He was betrayed. Is because God saw how bad my sin was. And how bad your sin was. And He says there's only one thing that will satisfy that. My son my purity, and my sacrifice. When you take communion, take a moment. Paul said, I'm the worst of all sinners. He got it. He got it. So Lord, we come this morning. We want to come in humility. We want to come and honor you. Lord, we want to come in afresh, lay down our lives before you and say, God, you're worthy. You're worthy to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise and the dominion and power. For you laid down your life for us. And you became and are today our high priest. And every day you pray for us, and every day you intercede for us that we may be saved completely. Lord, we know that one day when we stand before you, the only claim to fame that we will have is that Jesus died, that Jesus is our high priest, that Jesus interceded for us, and that Jesus saved us completely. God, we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, we just want to finish with a song or two.